This is a story about a string of murders, assassinations of media pundits. They were extreme peddlers of their party's agenda. And their murders feel politically motivated. Assigned to the case, a group of grizzled and green FBI detectives. We're talking about the crime novel Code Gray, with its narrator, Champ Westwood, on this Desideratum. Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. It's fun that it has the, those layers because it could have ended up being kind of tropey. You know, grizzled FBI veteran, his rookie partner and the jokey friend go after a professional killer. Like, that sounds really corny. Like, who hasn't heard that story? <laughs> but when you put it with this political umbrella and kind of the inner machinations, how similar the killer is to Bodie, to Bodie's the lead agent, uh, it's very interesting how it plays out. It plays out differently than I would have expected. So that is... That's one of the things that I thought as I listened is there were a few things that were different than I expected. One was this overarching motivation storyline. And the other was that these are um, old school detectives. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like processes detailed and um, I don't know, descriptions that put you at the scene and it feels like, you know, an episode of of a crime show, of a detective show. Yeah. Uh, but there's this newer sort of tactic going on too. Like the one that first struck me was you get to sort of see how Brody's brain works. Oh, yeah. Right. So this is our very experienced FBI guy. But he has this habit of he's bouncing a ball on the wall or he's diverting attention mm -hmm. uh, by asking sort of unrelated questions. Right. Yeah. It's almost like he has ADHD, like he's got to, he has to like occupy, he even says it like, I have to occupy my body so my brain can be free and, and think and, and, you know, and he does all these distraction techniques in order to enable himself to be able to think clearly. Okay, so I loved that. I did too. I thought that was very real. Yes. And it seemed very purposeful by this author in this story to show how that sort of, um, oh, yeah, I think they call it fidgeting, right? Yeah. Call it a, a fidget distraction. Totally. Yeah. They have those little things you can play with. It's never called out. It's never like a diagnosed thing. It doesn't become literal in the story. But I really liked that component of it. I thought that allowed you to see the character differently than, like we were saying, a trope of a grizzled old. Yeah. I love that he's not a one-dimensional cardboard cutout guy. He's got problems. He's not perfect. He knows he's not perfect. He, he has some coping techniques he's developed. Yeah. He's a very real feeling person. In fact, most of the characters in the book, in my opinion, are very real feeling. And I love that um, Benny Sims, the author, doesn't tell you about this condition or this thing that he's trying to overcome. He just shows you. You just see the character doing it. 
kind of in the same way that Bodhi is a really good mentor. Uh, he's always mentoring everybody around him. He makes everybody around him better, but they, he never calls out Bodhi's being a mentor because he wishes people showed him X, Y, Z. A lot of authors do that, but instead you just see scenes where Bodhi's doing these things. He just acts in this way because it's who he is and we don't have to be told it because we just see it. Yes, yes, you just see it. I think the other part of that that um, the author does beautifully is you get these glimpses of backstory and you understand how trauma on all sides of the story, actually, like if we're talking about good guys and bad guys. Yes, absolutely. We get this understanding of trauma as affecting our lives. It was just an explanation for how someone could come to the place that they are. And I love all the details the author gives where, you know, the the picture is on the keychain and Bodhi's giving the keychain to people and he's asking Tony about his family in the car. And Tony's like, why don't you ever tell about your family? And then Bodhi clams up and gets real quiet. And Harry's like, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, hey. But I love the fact that the author just, like you're saying, references it in various ways, but never in flashback, never in exposition. It's just stuff that comes up organically through interacting with these characters. Yeah. And as I'm talking to you, it occurs to me how you can go right to the scene. Right. Like I know this book probably better than the author, like at this point, because, you know, you know what it's like. You you got to learn the book, you learn the characters, you got to listen to it, you got to edit it. And I've heard this book so many times. And also that it really stays with you. It does. Right. It does. Yeah. That every book you narrate becomes sort of a a chapter in you, right? True. It's a time capsule, right? When I hear it, I remember what I was going through at the time, what my life was at the time. I remember how I created these characters. And in many ways, I don't know if this happens for you, but I get attached to the characters. Like I actively can miss them. Like I'll hear it. I'll go, oh, my boys, how are you guys? What's going on? And it's stupid, right? It's me. There's nobody. No, I don't think it's stupid. You know what I think is is funny is that I have actually asked authors for sequels. I'm like, so what's going on with those characters? Are you right? Is there another book? And usually it's like, no, that was that was the story. Like, move on, Teresa. Right, that was the story I had in my head and have a great life. The other thing I'm always looking for that um, I wondered if you felt when you were narrating this was there's always a place where the author reveals to the listener the inspiration for the title. Oh, yes, absolutely. Or literally the title name will come up, but it's always one of those places where as I'm prepping the book, I go, oh. Yes, I love that. And in this one, they do that very directly. I'm sure you remember the scene with the old man is like, what does code gray mean to you? And he's like, tells them all about it. And you're like, oh, my goodness. You know, like, oh, wow, here, here it is. Yes, yes. I don't know. I don't know that it was necessarily unexpected, but it was a layer uh, that tied back into that overarching political, you know, this idea that things cannot be black and white, you know. Yes. And I love that. I love the fact that not just the black and white thing, but that the author had this premise in mind when he wrote this book. Like that is clear that this was the through line. Like this is the the sand that becomes the pearl and the oyster is this whole let's wipe out the black and white and make it gray. Yes, I think you're right. I think when you get to the end of the book, you feel that the author had an intention. Yes, I don't feel like he wrote a cop story and then put this over top of it to give it political drapings. I feel like... He had this in mind. This is what this person is doing. How do we stop this? Oh, here's some characters and let's put them in this situation and and have a plan. Very organic in my mind. I don't know. It felt very natural the way things progressed. It did. 
I'm glad you said that because that brings me to a question about your process. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, this can be kind of controversial, I think, in the narration world. Um, but, and especially in this book, for me, there's a moment where you discover a betrayal. Yes. And I won't go into any more details about what that betrayal is, but it is definitely a like, what? Shocker, right? Shocker. Yeah. So in your preparation to narrate this book, did you read ahead? Did you prep the whole book before you narrated? And why? So the answer is super controversial. I think I'm the only narrator I know, the only actor I know that does not read ahead. Um, that said, though, I do lean very heavily on my authors. Uh, I always like to have a conversation before the project starts to say, who are the main characters? Don't give me any spoilers, but can you tell me about them? Where are they from? Are, what are their parents like? Are they divorced? Do they come from a, a good home? What were their aspirations before becoming a cop in this case? I like to learn like what made you write them. I want to learn about the characters without knowing how they play out in the story. But the reason I do it is because I'm, I'm sure you you know this, I'm from the theater. So I, I did musicals for years and years. I'm from the theater. And in the theater, everything is big and dramatic and projected and telegraphed. Mm. If a person's a villain, you need to know they're a villain from the get-go. But in, in audiobooks, it's so much more intimate. When you're talking to a listener, it's just you and them in the airplane, in a car, and doing the laundry or wherever people listen to things. And so being broad doesn't work because you're, you're, you're right there, they can hear everything. And so I'm afraid that I will telegraph, this person's gonna betray them, this person can't be trusted mm. uh, in my performance in subtle ways. It would, it would change my line readings a little bit. And I try not to do that. I would rather be shocked. And the other thing I love about it is it keeps my emotional reactions very fresh because I only find out that they're betraying everybody the night before. So I read at night and I lay in bed at night and read the chapter I'm going to record the next day. And I'm sitting in the bed going, no, are you kidding me? <laughs> you have to be kidding me. And, and that's so fresh that when I go into the booth, I can still feel that emotional reaction and bring it into the, into the books and into the characters. And so for those two reasons, I do not read ahead. I don't want to telegraph. And I love that fresh emotion. That said, though, I do a lot of prep work in advance. Um, it takes me a couple weeks before I even record one chapter. I will read the first like four chapters. I'll read about 20% of the book to get a feeling for what kind of pacing do we need um, for the listeners. That means like how fast everything, fast or slow, you know, where do I need to let it breathe and let an emotional, you know, arc hit, uh, you know, what that's like. I want to get a feel for who the characters are, the lead characters. By chapter four, you've met the leads. You understand their motivations. Generally speaking, the, the plot devices are showing themselves, the, the why they're there, what they're there to do, have revealed themselves. And so that informs the performance. But after that, it's just like, let her rip and let's just see what happens. <laughs> and I've been shocked so many times in these books with these betrayals and people, because the, the reader, the listener also doesn't know who the betrayer is or anything until they've heard it once and then maybe they go back and listen. So I like to keep it very fresh faced for them to give them, you know, that experience where like whoosh, there, there's nothing other than what you're being shown. Obviously, there's subtext and, you know, different objectives and things that we talk about. But in terms of like, I'm going to betray you, even the character, you know, in chapter one or two doesn't know they're going to betray in certain ways. They may know ultimately 
they've got alternative goals or you know different reasons to do things, but they don't actually know the logistics of what's going to happen. Yes, you're trying to prevent anyone from having a crystal ball. Yes, 100%. The listener, the characters, any the storyline, anything. You don't want anybody to look, be able to see ahead, which I think is also an author's goal, really. As an author's writing a crime mystery, they don't want to really leave any big Easter eggs. I agree. If anything, there's like, what do they call them? Red herrings, right? Like we're pushing you off track. And so as a narrator, I think that's a really, it's a really interesting approach to understanding character without giving too much away. Right. It also forces me to really examine a character. And I need to look at why the character is doing or saying what they're doing. In my mind, you know, I have to think, why would this character behave this way or say this to them and come up with a reason in my mind to make that work? And I think that's, uh, for me at least, it, it makes me feel more in touch with the characters. I can see lots of different motivations and different things. forces me to really examine them. Yes. I so appreciate everything that you say about understanding character. I think that's such an essential part of narration. I think people get praised for using voices, but really what's what's below that is is understanding motivation like you're talking about or understanding the character to create a character as much as a voice. Absolutely. And and that being said, like you this book is full of men. It really is. There's so many male characters. So how did you differentiate all of them? Like when you were starting to think about making sure the listener could differentiate the voices in the audiobook, and yet you have three or four men in a room talking to each other. How do you approach that? So for me, the, the beginning, that's a great question, by the way. Uh, for me, the first thing I try to get is the essence of why they are behaving that way. So um, let's, we can use a couple of characters as an example. So let's say Harry in this book. Harry is making jokes all the time. It's established that he's not really good at his job, but everybody likes him. And so I'm like, well, do they like him because he's funny? Well, reading him, the jokes really aren't that funny, but he's very, he's, he's affable. So who's a person that's not good at their job, that makes a lot of jokes and tries to get along with everybody? That kind of person's going to be a little insecure. He's always adjusting his tie. He's always changing, moving, with fiddling with his clothing. So I immediately thought, well, this is an insecure person who feels anxious and he's using humor as a way to lessen the tension both for him and the people around him and so then that informs my delivery like how fast I'm going to talk and uh, that kind of pattern thing and then I needed a way to differentiate and so one way you know do you change the pitch do you make it go up or down well an anxious person isn't going to have a real low confident voice it's going to be higher it's going to be higher pitched and he's going to go up in that register because he's not really sure and so that started and by the way I do um I do test runs of the first scene. So I'll have three or four different versions of a character and I will record them all together in a scene and I'll listen. And then I'll record alternate takes. Like, let's say I have three different versions of each character. I'll record one with one, 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 and I'll listen. And if one of them stands out, I'll try to pair them. It's like casting a movie. I'm like, well, that good is good with that one. And that one's good with that one. Wow. And so I'll keep doing those scenes until I find the voices that mesh, that feel like, okay, these guys are friends or they work together. I can understand you know, how different they all are. And so for Harry, he was sounding a lot like Tony to me because they're in the same vocal register. And so to differentiate the two, I gave Harry a New York accent. He's a New York cop. He lives in New York. It makes sense. He's the only one with that real accent. And then I gave Tony a vocal affectation um, where I talk like this. I use my lips like this and really change it up. And that gives him a 
a different feel than maybe like, a, you know, like a jokey New York guy. But if I strip out the accent and strip out the lips, it's kind of the same sound, like in terms of pitch and where it is. And so that's what I'll do in, in the beginning with the, with the lead characters. I'm kind of casting them. And I try to think when I read, um, and I also ask the authors, do you have anyone in Hollywood in mind uh, when you wrote this? And I never do impressions, but in my mind, I like to have a visual reference. And so I'll think of the actor and that'll help me find that voice. Not necessarily creative, but to help like remember where it sits and the attitudes and the feelings um, that they have. And so that's kind of the credit. And then there's other weird ones too, like um, in this one, I talked to the author beforehand and he had mentioned how um, both um, uh, Bodhi is obviously the lead detective, but how um, he had a mentor in this book and um, and, had, and the author really wanted to make sure that the relationship between those two was understood that, you know, Bodhi had this trauma. He had this mentor who he, he basically clung to like a life raft to get his life back in a semblance of, of normality. And then he also wanted me to show how similar the killer is to Bodhi. And so as a vocalist, I wanted to convey that to the listener that these people are similar to Bodhi. And so what I did is I created Bodhi's voice. And then when I created his mentor, I put it a little deeper and I put a little like straw in my mouth to give him a kind of a different sound. Uh, and so you hear that in the vocalization and the same with the killer. Um, I gave him a little bit lower than Bodhi, a little more soft-spoken. He doesn't have all the inflections, but some of the intensity. I wanted that to be purposely a little blended, so to speak. So that's kind of a, I guess like a rainbow of characterization where Bodhi's in the middle and then you kind of go out here and then kind of in there. Uh, I don't know if that transfers through, but that was kind of my process with them. Yes, I think that's so fascinating about trying to find a minor difference between characters that are very purposely from the storyteller, from the author, connected, overlapped, similar. I mean, the author even says we're cut from the same cloth. He does. Many times we're the same, you and me. Yeah, I guess I hadn't realized until right now how extremely challenging this particular <laughs> this particular project really was. It was so much fun. I love this book. It's such a great story, such a fun story. And I love the characters and the characterization that I, I chose. I really, really enjoy it. Yeah, I think that comes through. I think it comes through. So as you are looking for stories that you can connect to and stories that you can fall in love with like this. Yeah. How do you choose your next project? How do you go choose what you're even going to audition for? So that has changed over time. It used to be that I would take any project. Someone's like, you want to do a book? I'm like, heck yeah, do please send me your book. I want to read anything. But I have found over time that there are books I connect with and other ones that I don't. And so for me now, when I'm choosing projects to accept or to audition for, if I don't get that like oh, I want to tell this story, then I don't, I'm not taking it anymore. Um, because it's, it, you know, it's so much work to put together an audiobook. You're looking at 80 hours, 100 hours in a book, probably when you go, for me, at least I do like, I do accent research, I do all these character voices that I make up, in addition to the recording time and the editing time. Um, so it's a big project. It's a lot of, it's a big commitment for me. And so I want to make sure I'm passionate about it. And boy, this book grabbed me in the first chapter. With the, with the assassin, I, I wrote the publisher. I'm like, this is going to be so cool. I can't wait to do it. I want to voice this guy. And it was so much fun. You are a one-man band. You are wearing all the hats. You are promoting yourself. 
Yes. Uh, seeking out auditions and partnerships with storytellers and publishers. You are recording in your own space. And directing all of it. You're the artistic director. You decide the tone, the pace, the characterizations, accents, no accents. Yes. That full creative control. Okay. That's a good spot to pause and listen to some of Champ's creative choices and character voices. I picked this scene because you can really hear how Champ brings every character to life. This is from Code Gray by Benny Sims, narrated by Champ Westwood. The lady turned toward a door near the back corner of the room. It looked as if it led to another office. Pete! she yelled. A couple of seconds later, a wiry, gray-haired man came to the door. He held on to the door facing with both hands. He looked tired, worn out, and disheveled, like someone might look in the late afternoon close to quitting time. But it was still mid-morning. There was a slight wheeze in his breathing. He gave the three men a brief look, then shuffled out into the room with them. An invisible cloud followed him that smelled of cigarette smoke, coffee, and cheap aftershave. He looked at Tony, then at Harry, and his gaze settled on Bodie. Yes, sir, he asked. Peter Warren, Bodie asked him. Call me Pete. What you need? Well, sir, we're investigating a series of murders in the city, and we saw one of your trucks leaving an alley after it dropped off a dumpster just a while ago. Yeah. Cat radioed me a few minutes ago, told me he pulled him over. Did he not give you all the information you needed? Well, he claims he doesn't know any details about the dumpster he had just delivered. We're hoping you could answer some of the questions we have. Well, he wasn't lying when he said he don't know. Neither do I. It's a big deal with a dumpster anyway. Well, sir, we think someone might have been hiding inside one of them when they fired the shots, Bodhi said. You mean we might be accessories to a murder? Who got shot? It was a couple of pretty famous radio personalities, Bodhi said. And we're not accusing you of anything. We just need a few questions answered. Who paid you to deliver the dumpster? Tony asked, reaching inside his jacket pocket for a notepad. Bodhi and Harry already had theirs out. Peter Warren looked over at Tony and let out a ragged sigh. The wheeze from his chest was audible from more than six feet away. I don't know. All I know is that my boss told me to deliver a dumpster to that address by a certain time this morning. So I did. I can't afford to ask too many questions. I need my job. The middle-aged secretary clicked away on her computer keyboard, pretending not to be paying attention but doing a lousy job of it. Warren looked at Bodie this time. It's kind of weird for us to be delivering a dumpster because we're usually just picking them up. Somebody else delivers them. It's kind of tough on us, you see, because we don't really have the type of truck that most companies use to haul those things. Most places have either a tilt bed truck with a, a winch to either pull up or let down the dumpster or they got one of them fancy uh, scissor trucks that picks them up, sets them down. The driver never even has to get out of the cab. And you don't have one of those trucks? Bodie asked. Nah, 
We can't afford one. We're a small place here. Barely afford what we got. Warren said, holding both hands out, palms up, gesturing at the tiny office, the battered condition of his loading docks, and the puny size of his fleet of trucks. All we got are three flatbed trucks, a big moving van, an 18-wheeler. Oh, and a forklift that goes on the back of flatbed trucks. So uh, what's the forklift for? Harry asked. Well, since our truck beds don't tilt back, we gotta get the car go up on it somehow, don't we? I mean, we're not always lucky enough to have a loading dock to back up, too. So we gotta have some way to pick stuff up off the ground. Those truck beds are nearly four feet in the air, too. Too high for us to pick it up and set it up there with our hands. Stuff's usually too heavy, too. Just then, a flatbed truck came rumbling through the warehouse parking lot, boiling dust from its wheels. The bed was empty, and a forklift was attached to the back. It was Cat returning from his run. Do you have any invoices or job orders for delivering the dumpsters? Bodhi asked. Oh, I know I had a weird question. Okay, go. There's two different characters that um, in this book are going to leave it all behind for island life. That's true. Like it happens. It happens twice. It does. Did you ever have a conversation with the author or did you yourself be like, yeah, leave it all behind? (laughs) I think there's so many times in my life I just want to leave it all behind. I mean, haven't we all wanted to just run off somewhere with no memories and no background, no past and just start brand new with pina coladas and a beautiful sunset, you know, who who doesn't want that? But it is funny that two characters have that idea that they want to go specifically to tropical locations. Maybe that's the default retirement zone for criminals. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and and that um, this is based in New York City. So maybe the longer you spend in New York City, the more you're like, island. Yes, in the cold and the rain and the crowds. Yeah, I just want to be on a beach alone with nobody around. Yeah, totally. It's so funny. And also, you know, it's funny that they they identify, I just, okay, I'm ready to just leave this life behind and I want to go live on an island. And then the author writes that that decision, that letting go of a past life brings them a lot of peace, right? Like they then in that moment are like, okay, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. I think it gives them something that like if your problems are so overwhelming in the moment, but you can foresee a time when you're going to be relaxed and at peace and everything worked out, if you can buy into that fantasy, then sure, the present moment's going to get so much easier because this doesn't even matter. I'm going to the island next. And also that gets me to like the rooting for characters, right? Like in that moment, you're kind of rooting for them to get away and get to the island. Yeah, absolutely. Even though they're not good people, you're suddenly like, yeah, get there, get out of this miserable life and get to the island, right? You're suddenly rooting for them. You are. And I think that's a credit to the author's ability to make even a dark, disgusting character relatable and not necessarily an anti-hero because you're not necessarily wanting them to succeed in their mission, but relatable like, oh, this is a human and I see some of the struggles they're having despite the fact that they're, you know, sitting in a dumpster ready to shoot somebody, you know, but, but he makes them relatable, understandable. Yeah. Which is nice. It is. It's, it's good storytelling. It is. It really is. Okay, so the last question I always ask people is, based on the name of the podcast, which is Desert Erratum, 
And that comes from a poem. It was hanging on the wall when I was a little girl. And I have it hanging on the wall for my kids that is about essential things. There's lots of like life lessons in it. Mm -hmm. So I always like to ask people for you, like in your life, in any capacity, you could answer it as a narrator, you could answer it as a person, but for you, what is most essential? I think for me, what's most essential is to enjoy yourself, pursue things that give you a light up in your face, a passion and a drive to go do uh, with people who also enjoy that. And uh, to surround yourself with positive, supportive friends and, and loving relationships. And uh, just to have things that make you want to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, we all have lots of different challenges and stresses in our lives. And to have one or two things that you can hold on to is kind of your like lighthouse in the storm. Uh, that no matter how stormy or how calm the waters are, that you are always headed in this direction and it's the right direction for you. And you're on that boat with people you care about and support you. That's what's important to me. Yeah. That's such a huge challenge, isn't it? It is. It's hard not to get stuck in the weeds, isn't it? It's difficult. It's tough. It is. Treading water, treading water. Yes. <laughs> Trying to find the lighthouse. Yep. I'm always like, what am I, what do I really want? And, and it's this thing. How do I get there? And who do I want to go on this journey with me? And, and that's, that's it for me. Yes. That's excellent. Thank you. And while you were talking, your lovely dog crossed behind you and seen. She's one of the most important parts of this whole equation. My sweet greyhound, Daphne. <laughs> she heard her cue. Essential things. Here I come. Right. I heard you're talking about special people. I'm one. I'm a person. That's so funny. I hope you had as much fun as I did getting to know Champ Westwood. He also narrates under the name Mike Eberhart. I'll put his website where he has all his narration projects listed in the show notes. It's superfunstudios.com. As always, thanks for being here, and thanks for listening. <laughs>